The first Sunday of the month, we are in, we are in the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been, we've been at this for, well, our church is what, a year and a half old now? And, and so we've been, from day one, we've been in John's gospel through the regular part of, of the month. And on first Sundays, we've been preaching out of Ecclesiastes. And this is, this section that we're going to preach here is really officially the last part of the book that Solomon has written, that the preacher has written. The, the next part that we'll do uh, next month is really uh, it's like an editorial conclusion about everything that Solomon has just written. He is the wisest man in the world, and uh, he's been telling us every week uh, about what wisdom is really all about, what life is really all about, and um, today we're going to sit down with him one last time, and he's going to talk to us about the wisdom of making life really count, what that, what that looks like. So could I ask you to please stand one last time um, out of for respect for the reading of God's Word? Uh, we do this out of respect for the speaker, who is God, not me. I am only the reader. God is the speaker. He is speaking to us live through his word. So this is the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter, starting at chapter 11, verse 1. We'll go all the way through verse 8. Listen now to God's inerrant word. Cast your bread upon the waters, and you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven, or even to eight For you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. If a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many, and all that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all of these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil day comes and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut and the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, said the preacher, all is vanity. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless us to understand it. There's so much 
wisdom in this for us, and it's so densely packed, it's hard to even see it all, to understand it all, Lord, but you are telling us beautiful things about how to enjoy life, how to rejoice as your people, and how to make our lives count. And so, Lord, we pray uh, that as we study your word today, you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I remember a while ago I read an article or, or, or a book that was talking, it was a big list of the last words or the final days of a bunch of famous people. Oscar Wilde was one of them. If you know who Oscar Wilde was, he was a, a, an author in the 1800s who, who his life was a vacillation between Christianity and hedonism, Christianity and hedonism. And in the book it talked about the, his last days of being just filled with remorse and regret and just the, the, the coming to the realization that he could not turn back time and undo all the years that he had wasted. They talked also about Rock Hudson, the, the famous actor, and about how he had lived a hedonistic lifestyle his entire life and then in the, in the last few days of his life, he had called a priest to come so he could cry and confess and, and have remorse about all the days of his life. Um, all of them had the same experience of this deep regret for their lives and the realization that it was now, it was too late to go back and change anything. And, uh, you know, I was reading this as I was meditating on the passage again today. There's been a couple times in the book of Ecclesiastes where the preacher gives us, uh, gives us an opportunity to step into a time machine and, like, go back in our lives and see like how we should have done things, how things would be better done so that there's not regret at the end of our lives. And this is one of them. This, uh, this, the question, the big question that he's going to ask today is, uh, is that all, uh, all these people that I, just, that I just talked about, Oscar Wilde, Rock Hudson, this really was my story in a big way too. All those people had this one basic idea, this one very popular idea that they were going to live their lives to the fullest, and then at the end, at the end of life, then they were going to come to God. It's a super popular idea. Throughout the history of the church, if you even read in the early history of the church, people would wait to get baptism on their deathbeds because they were like, you know, they would be, they were thinking, well, if I'm going to get, you know, if I'm going to come to Jesus, I need to do it like at the end of my life. And so they would wait, they would, they would, be in the church, but they would wait to be baptized at the very end of their lives because this theme was, I'm going to live my life to the fullest and then at the very end, I'm going to come to God. So I'm going to have my cake, experience everything that life's got to offer, and then at the very end, I'm going to make a U-turn and ask God's forgiveness and come to the end. And, and what Solomon's going to ask us today in this passage is, is that really the smart thing to do? Is it possible the thief on the cross says it's possible, right? It's a very, the counts in salvation isn't our works. It's not our faithfulness to God so much as it's God's faithfulness to us. And really, salvation is about repentance, repenting of what we're trusting in to save us and believing in Jesus as the only manner of salvation. But the question is, is that, is that the smartest way to live? Is that really how to rejoice in life? Is that really what's going to make life the best and the fullest? And the preacher, in this passage, he's going to say, no, it's not the smartest thing to do. It's not the wisest thing to do. 
the wise thing to do is to remember your creator in your youth. And so the big idea, thesis of this passage, what he wants us to know more than anything is, is this. He wants to tell us to live out your calling and rejoice in God now because life is shorter than you think. Live out your calling and rejoice in God now because life is shorter than you think. Amen? <laughs> okay, let's look at that one, one part at a time. First part, live out your calling. Let me read verses 1 through 6 again. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. The clouds are full of rain. They empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, it will, there it will lie. And he who observes the wind will not sow. He regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way of the spirit that comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. What does that mean? I read uh, this commentator. He said, we are probably the first generation uh, to not teach our children's Proverbs. Not the book of Proverbs, but the form of a proverb, which is taking pictures from life uh, and, and that tell us truth at an even deeper level than, than, just a truth, than, than just a propositional truth statement would be able to convey to us. And forever, people would teach wisdom and teach truth through things, these things called proverbs. But we, I think, he, I think he's wrong. I think we're probably the second, maybe third generation that have no clue what Proverbs are, how to work with them. So when we come to this stuff and we read it, it sounds almost like nonsense. But here's what he's saying. Let me break it down. This is what he's saying. He says, first of all, starting in verse, verse, uh, at verse 2 or, or verse, where is it? Verse, I think verse 2, he says, you do not know what disaster may happen on the earth. In other words, life is full of uncertainty and potential disaster. Sometimes we can see it coming and can't do anything about it. Like, say, clouds that are full of water that dump their water on the earth, like hurricanes. What a perfect week it is to see the meaning, the depth of the meaning of that proverb. Sometimes you can see, you know, a giant, massive hurricane is coming on shore and there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, <clears throat> and what we do know is that wherever, whatever disaster does fall, there its consequences will be. Wherever that tree falls, north, south, when it hits the ground, there it's going to stay. The consequences are there. We have to just learn how to deal with that. But, but, verse 11, chapter, uh, verse, uh, verse 4, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. In other words, in planting, when you're planting, the best weather is to have no wind. So you're sowing and casting your seeds they are not taken away. Uh, and when you're, when, you're, when you're reaping, when you're harvesting, it's best to not have any rain because it can ruin the crop. In other words, what he's saying is there is no perfect timing since there's so much uncertainty in the world. Since we don't know what's coming, there's no perfect timing. And so if you're waiting for the out, you're just staring at, you're staring at the wind, waiting for the perfect time to come, or you're looking at the clouds, waiting for the perfect time to come, if you, you wait for the perfect time, you could run the risk of missing out altogether. 
So, since we do not know what God is up to, we don't know how God, we don't even know how the Spirit comes into babies in the womb, but we do know that God does everything. We know that God is sovereign, that God is at work in the world. The best thing we should do is just start now and work hard at what we know God has called us to do. In the morning, we sow our seed, work all day till evening. And here's the, here's the main point. So that, the purpose is, so that we can then contribute and participate, cast our bread, into the ongoing, ongoing flow of the mission of God in the world, the flowing waters. And so this is a call to not st- stress out about the uncertainties of life, to work hard, put our, to work hard and be faithful to what we know we're called to do so that we can be generous, so that we can give, so that we can contribute in this ongoing work of God in the world. And so out of that purpose, two big applications. First, of course, is is, is, is it's, bringing, it's, it's teaching us that giving, whether it's our money, whether it's time, whether it's our, our, our talents, whatever it is, whatever we're giving, that giving is presented to us not as this test that God is giving us, or um, it's, giving it, it's presenting it as this opportunity to participate in what God is doing in the world, to participate in in blessing other people to participate in the flowering of life and salvation that God is working in the world right now, to be a part of that, to be a part of those eternal things. I mean, one of the big ones is giving, giving money, right? This is the one that hurts us as Americans the most because money is so... We trust in money more than just about anything, right? We just had our men's group last night. We're going through Tim Keller's Counterfeit Gods, uh, and it was the, t- the sub- subject was greed, about how, gr- what, how we suffer, how greed is so prevalent in the American church because we are so prosperous, we're so wealthy as people that we don't even, we don't even understand what greed is. He talks about, in the book, he talks about how he told his wife, Tim Keller's wife, Tim Keller's a pastor in our church denomination from New York City, uh, and he, he's written this book called Counterfeit Gods. He's, his wife told him that as he was doing this Bible study on all the seven deadly sins, the greed section would be the lowest attended, not because people didn't, uh, not because people uh, were ashamed of it, but because they just didn't think they were greedy at all, because it's so prevalent. It, we are so wealthy, so prosperous. Uh, and we rely on money so much for so many things that we don't even see it. We don't even see it. He brought, he brought out this concept in the, in the book of these deep idols of the heart, which was fascinating. Because we think of idols, things that we worship, things that we put our trust in. Uh, idols is money or sex or fame or you can fill in the blank. And he's brought up this concept that there's really, there's these deeper idols within us, like a desire to, be, to have security, a desire to be admired by other people. And the, re- the reality is that money is able to buy those things. Money can buy you security. Money can give you a feeling of security. Money can give you a feeling, uh, or you, have, you, can, you can use money to buy things that would make you admired by other people. And so we're prone to that based on our culture, but what Solomon's trying to tell us is, 
is that the reality of it is that over time, the more stuff that we do for us, over time, that becomes less and less significant, less and less meaningful. But the more we do for other people, the more we do in service, the more we measure our success in the success and the blessing of other people, the more fruitful and the more beautiful that becomes over time. And so he encourages us to think about giving, however it might be, as an opportunity to participate in eternal things and the life that it brings, which is a, kind of a different way to think about it, right? When I, mean, I think about giving money, the first thing I think about is, what am I, what is what's it going to cost me? <laughs> it's going to cost me this book. <laughs> Probably not a big temptation for everybody, but it is for me, right? So, or it's going to cost me this vacation. Or it's going to cost me the new car. But the reality, what, what, what Solomon is saying to us is, by not giving, what does that cost us? That's a bigger question. It costs us the loss of participating in the life that God is bringing into the world. Second application from this first section that I think is it's more subtle, but actually hit me a little harder, is that, is that the, the gist of what he's talking about here is that, there's, we're, that we're so full of fear and uncertainty about starting, about doing something because we're waiting for the right and perfect time that we run the risk of not doing it at all and then run the risk of not producing from it stuff that will bless other people. And so there's the second application that hit me about all these, that there, there's, is there something, is there something, here's the question, is there something that you know God is calling you to do, but you're saying to yourself, can't do it now because the time's not right, timing's not perfect, you know God's calling you to do it, maybe it's start a family, maybe it's start a home business, maybe it's, maybe it's write a book, maybe it's put together a ministry, maybe it's uh, you know, some sort of service idea. I don't know what it is. Maybe somebody, you know, if you, if, if, maybe the Holy Spirit's popping something up in your mind right now. I know what it is for me, what hit me when I was reading this. And I'm not doing it because I'm afraid. I think it's not the perfect time. I'm waiting for the perfect wind, for the perfect clouds, and I'm missing the opportunity of, of, of walking out in this calling that God has given me to do and the downside is it's now it's 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 stopping the blessing that I could produce through it into the world. So I think that's a big application out of this first section of the, of this this passage. There are things that God has gifted each and every one of us to do, the things that God has called us to and a lot of times we're afraid to start or to do them because we think it's not the right time. Reality, it's never the perfect time. So with that in mind, walk out our callings, live out our calling now, whatever that may be. And point two, point two is rejoice in God now. Look at verses seven through 10. Light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that God will, for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain 
from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. It's a call here for us to rejoice in God. And how do we rejoice in God? It calls us to remember. First, to remember our Creator. It says to remember our Creator. It doesn't say, it's interesting, it doesn't say remember God. It, says, it uses a specific title for God, Creator, which is meaning, means to remind us that God is the Creator of all things, the giver of all good things. Um, there are some people that look at the book of Ecclesiastes and they see certain things in it that we've discussed as we've gone through it about the author of the book or the preacher says that I hated life or he talks about just the, the, just the death and destruction, the unfairness in life, how there's, the, there's righteous people that get paid back like the wicked and there's wicked people that get paid like the righteous. There's the bad people win, the good people lose and it doesn't make any sense at all. And there's a lot of people that have seen this book and said that's because Solomon or the, the author of this book is really just a disillusioned, angry person who has walked away from God and said it's all meaningless and it's all nonsense. They write whole books about how this is true. But if, we, if you look through the book, woven throughout the entire book is this idea of rejoicing by remembering God's good gifts to us. This is right here when he says, again, rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. That's the seventh time. This is the seventh time in the book. Sevens are big in, in the Bible. That he's called us to rejoice in God by remembering what God has done, or what God has given us. And if you go through, God has given us our life breath. Verse, or chapter 12 He's given us all the days of our life, chapter 8. He's given us wisdom and knowledge and joy, chapter 2. He's given us the ability to enjoy good things, chapter 5. He's given us meaningful work. He's given us wealth and possessions. He's given us the wealth and beauty of relationships. He makes everything beautiful in its time. And the list really goes on and on and on for that, of all the blessings that God has given us in this life. So to miss those is kind of insane. To, to think that this is a disillusioned, angry man who doesn't believe in God anymore is kind of hard to buy when you see that he's woven this, all the blessings of God through the text. And the, the reason people miss it, the reason why people miss how, uh, how much Solomon is talking about the blessing of God is because they don't remember where we are which is the second thing that Solomon really brings out throughout the book. And the, the where we are is the fallen world. Um, what guys like the, you know, that, that, that think that Solomon is disillusioned and angry, are, or what they miss is that Solomon is honest. Throughout, I mean, think about it. In our own lives, I mean, we know this to be true. We know, you know, bad people that have been rewarded greatly. They got away with it and they never got caught. And it seems like they, got a, they had a charmed life and they never, no justice seemed to be done. You know, and you, you, know, you know good people that have suffered. You know bad things that have happened to good people, maybe in your own life. We know that there's a lot of things in life that just don't make sense if we're thinking only on the plane of reality that we know, only in the plane of this life. 
If, if life was eat, drink, be merry, and then we die, there's no justice. And Solomon, like, he brings this out, the reality that we live in a fallen world, that we are not able to create this paradise on earth that people, that people want to believe that we can. We can't create the, a permanent home in this fallen world. Rather, what God has given us is a tent. We don't live in palaces or castles here on the earth. This is, it, he, it, whenever the Bible talks about this earth, this age, it talks in temporary terms. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament talks about, he uses the fact that we live in this earthly tent, meaning that it's temporary. Right? What does a tent do? A tent is in a palace. It's just enough to shelter you from the storm in the temporary. Right? And maybe some of you have bad experiences with camping. <laughs> I, I mean, my first experience, one of my first experiences with camping was in the Boy Scouts. We went snow camping in Big Bear in the snow. I was 12. I had a, you know, my sister's sleeping bag, I think, with my little ponies on it, totally unprepared. I was in a tent. It snowed. People were coming in and out of the tent. Long story short, snow got in the tent. My sleeping bag became totally soaked with water, and it was miserable miserable. Now compare that to, there's some of our friends who from our mother church, New Life, who just went on a camping trip in the Sierra Mountains. And one of our friends was putting all his gear up that he had bought. He bought this state-of-the-art tent that weighed two pounds, the state-of-the-art backpack, state-of-the-art, all this technical camping gear. And, And then they took all this super tech gear that kept them super comfy and warm and taken care of. And they got to walk up into the Sierra Mountains to this beautiful lake with mountains all around them and stay for four days. And they had a great time because they had this tent that gave, and, and equipment that gave them everything that they needed. Now, if they were going to live, if they were going to live in that tent forever, it would be a bummer, right? But they didn't have to. They, just, they had the tent and their gear gave them everything they needed to be comfortable, to experience the beauty of creation and God in this you know, in that four-day trip, and then at the end, they went back to their home. That's the other thing we need to remember to rejoice in God, that this earth is temporary, that we are not here permanently. We can't make this a perfect place. But God has given us a tent and everything we need to weather the storm of this life as we wait for the coming of the new age. And that's the third thing we need to remember in order to rejoice in God is that we, what the preacher looked forward to, what he hoped for, what he saw off in the distance, the, the completed salvation of mankind, we now know that as a reality. We look back to that. We look back to the cross. We look back to Jesus. We look and we remember what God has done for us in Christ to bring us into salvation. Book of, in, in Paul in, in Ephesians 2 says that we are to remember that we used to be outsiders, cut off from the family of God. But because what Jesus has done for us, that we are now members of the family of God. We've been brought in and adopted as sons and and daughters of God. 1 Corinthians 15 says we're to remember that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. And what that means is that we will too someday be resurrected from the dead into a new world. And Romans 8 says to remember that we already belong to the new kingdom of God and really what we're doing is we're just waiting to become what we already are. 
That makes a big, big difference, doesn't it? I mean, if it's going to be this forever, or it's going to, think about it, if it's going to be this a million times in a row, imagine that the terror that you would feel if reincarnation was true. This kind of suffering for a million lifetimes. Can you imagine the horror of that? The terror of having to live through the suffering that you've experienced in this life over and over and over and over and over and over again without end? What God is saying is this life, temporary. What I've given you is a tent. Everything to weather the storm, but I've also given you promises. I've given you evidences that Jesus has won the salvation for his people through his death and that we've been promised that God is going to bring us into the perfect world to come. And so we should remember God and rejoice in his blessings now because part three, life is shorter than you think. His life is shorter than you think. I'm going to read chapter 12, 1 through 8 again. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the door to the street are shut When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high. The terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags itself along. The desires fail because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, for the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Now, when you're young, like most of you are, you think you're immortal. Really. You don't think anything, you think you're going to, not. you don't, you know, right, intellectually, you know you're going to, Live forever. You're not going to live forever. But it's so far away in the future, and you're young now, that it's just, it's so abstract, it's such an abstract concept that you just, it's not even part of your everyday life. It doesn't even, doesn't rattle you at all. You think, I'm young, I'm strong, I'm healthy, and basically it's going to be this way for so long into the future that it might as well be forever. And then... Something will happen to you somewhere along the way that will wake you up. I remember I had, um, I was a boxer, and I was having trouble with my left shoulder, and so I went to the osteo, the osteo whatever guy, I went to the doctor to see what was up, who was like some muscle, tendons, frozen shoulder, whatever. They did an x-ray of my shoulder, and it was osteoarthritis. I had basically the ball part of my shoulder was square and the, uh, the cuff part, all the cartilage was completely gone. 
And what that meant, there was nothing, there's no fix for that. He basically looked at me and he's like, sorry, (laughs) we can't fix that. It was the first time I ever went to the doctor and then left without knowing I was going to get better. It was, and it's shocking. When the first time that happens to you, when you realize that your body is really decomposing, or not decomposing, but disintegrating, it will decompose soon enough. It'll be di- it'll, soon enough, right? But it's literally disintegrating. It's, gonna, it's starting to, for the first thing breaks, that's not going to get fixed. It's a, that was a wake-up call for me. I was like, wow, it's really happening. The preacher gives these vivid portrayals, again, using these proverbs to tell us of the coming, the coming storm of old age, the disintegration of the body, and then eventually the coming of death. And he does it in these word pictures that are deeper than, than anything we could, that, that we could say without them. Picture one, the coming of the... the he pictures one... Uh, we're talking about the, the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. is really this image of looking out into the Mediterranean Sea and seeing the approaching storm. And then picture two is the disintegration of the body from verses three through five. The keepers of the house are the hands that protected you throughout your whole life. Now they tremble. The strong men are the legs that are now bent. The grinders that are few are now the teeth that have fallen out. Those who look through the windows are the eyes. The doors to the street are your ears. So now grinding is low, but you you still wake up at the sound of a bird. You ever know that old people, older people? Can't hear a thing. Bird sings in the morning, you're up. All those old guys are at Denny's at 5.30 in the morning for a reason. And you will soon join them. (laughs) That's the point. (laughs) Daughters of song is the voice that it's brought low. You become afraid of heights. There's terror in the way. There's just more opportunity for injury. The almond tree was a tree that blossomed with white. It's a picture of the hair becoming white in old age. The grasshopper drags itself along. is a picture of arthritis and decreased mobility. Desires fail. No comment. You all know what I'm talking about. And then picture three is death, the silver cord and the bowl. That's a bowl, is a, a bowl. golden bowl was a lamp and the silver cord would snap. The lamp would fall to the ground, smash oil everywhere. The lamp would be extinguished. The precious life would be extinguished. This, the, the shattered pitcher and the broken wheel of the cistern was the way that you would get water out of the well. The pitcher was broken or the wheel didn't work for the bucket. You were cut off from the fountain of the waters of life. And his point, his point is that it happens so fast. Man, it happens so fast, doesn't it? I'm 52. 52. And it's, this is an old joke. Inside of every old person is a young person wondering what the heck just happened. <laughs> and it's totally true. It happens so fast. Uh, and so, you know, you think about that popular idea that we mentioned in the beginning, that I'm going to live my life to the fullest now, i.e., I'm going to indulge in all sorts of worldly things. I'm going to just live and just do everything I want to do, all the pleasures I can indulge in, all the me, 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 me I can get. And at the end of life, 
then I'm going to come to God, and then I'm going to repent and come to God. Um, it seems like that that would be having your cake and eating it too, right? You get to have the cake, got to eat, have as much sex as you want, spend the money however you want, do whatever you want, me, 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 and then at the end of life, you get to eat it too, you repent, and everything's good. But the preacher says it's not, it's not like that. It's just in real life, it's really not like that, even though when you're young, that looks like it might be true. I have a friend who uh, developed serious lung cancer in his 40s, late 40s, and, um, and I went to meet with him. And I've told this story before, but it's, it fits in this application too. I went to meet with him. We talked talked about a lot of things, and um, you know, I, he was worried about dying, obviously, and, and, and uh, you know, I was talking to him about Jesus and about salvation. That say, you know, really what I was telling him was, you know, God may heal you, and we're going to pray for that. All of us are going to pray that God would heal you from this tumor that's in your lung, either through supernatural means or through the providence of good medicine. We're going to do that. But even if... Even if he does heal you, what, he's, what you're getting is a, maybe a 30-year reprieve. Something else is going to come back and you're going to die. So the real healing that I want to talk to you about is the eternal life that God has to offer us through Jesus because that, no matter what happens to you, that's eternal life. That's the life that survives death. That's what I really want to talk to you about. And he kind of tensed up and he like tears running down his face and he goes and he said this he said he goes he's like you're going to tell me I've lived my whole life now for me and then right at the end now that I need it now I'm going to turn to God as in now now I'm going to turn to God after I've lived my whole life my way he said so much in that one little sentence you know he said so much in that one little sentence, but the big part of what, what's important for us to bring out of that is that as he was looking back on his life from the back end, he didn't, you know, he was, he was bummed by how he had lived his life and it made him feel ashamed to come to God. There's a real, there's a real risk in that big idea that you will be too ashamed to come to God at the end. That's one reason why it doesn't work or why it's not a wise idea. But the bigger idea is, is he's, he was expressing something that Paul said in Romans chapter 6 when he was ta- Paul's talking about our former way of life. And he says this. It's, 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 a, it's a powerful passage talking about the former way we used to live and how we would re- re- revel in sin. And he said this. He says, For when you were slaves of sin, when sin ruled us, you were free with regards to righteousness, meaning righteousness, you didn't, have, you didn't worry about before you came to Christ, you were free in regards to righteousness. You didn't care what you did. The more you sinned, the better it was. And he says, but, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Meaning, when you get to the end of life and you look back, those things, they bring regret. For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, 
The fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What he's saying is that when you get towards the end of life and you look back, all the, that whole, all that living for me, all that, you know, going to live now, at the end of life, it doesn't look like cake anymore. It, just look, it looks like sin. It looks like destruction. It looks like harm. It looks like sadness and pain and death. older you get, looking back on those things, the less appealing they become. And so, at the end of the day, he's saying we really have, there's two choices. You can live this life of self-worship and at the end of life come to realize the pain you've caused, the destruction that we brought, and be in remorse. Or, we can live a life of worship to God now, in the prime of our lives in the strength of our lives, remembering where we are in this fallen world, to not expect too much, to understand that God has given us a comfy tent to weather the storm, to remember that his blessings uh, to us are keeping us safe, to remember our salvation in Jesus, that the promise of God to bring us into the perfect world that we all long for and rejoicing in that hope uh, is right around the corner and to know that he's going to do it. And then in the meantime, using our strength, using all we have in gratitude to sow blessing and sow life and sow peace to everyone around us. He says at the end of the day, when we do that, it's not remorse, it's rejoicing. It's beauty, it's life. And we'll look back on a life where we have participated and contributed to the eternal things of God and that will cause satisfaction and that is what causes rejoicing in life. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and for the blessing in it, Lord, for the wisdom that you give us in the wisdom literature. (laughs) We thank you for Solomon and the wisdom that you gave him for the Holy Spirit, for recording these things and keeping them safe throughout generations, throughout millennia, to teach us the important things in life. To not expect too much out of a fallen world, to rejoice in our salvation in Jesus, that he has paid the price for us, to be with you in eternity forever, to rejoice in that, and out of a gratitude and love for who you are and what we've done, that we might go out and live life to be a blessing to others to give rather than to get, and at the end of our lives, that that is what will bring us peace and joy. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us, strengthen us to live in that wisdom. Lord, help us to, uh, to know that you love us even when we fail in it, to strengthen us uh, in our, even in our failures, Lord. But we pray, Lord, that we would use these things so that we might honor you, so that we might glorify you and so that we might bless you, Lord, as you have so blessed us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.